Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. In this month's episode number 35 on pediatric orthopedic emergencies, we have with us Dr. Jonathan Peary and Dr. Sanjay Mehta. Dr. Peary is an emergency physician at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto and an associate professor and clinical educator in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Toronto. He received his MD at the University of British Columbia and his Master's of Education, FAAP, and DAPPED at the University of Toronto. He's a recipient of multiple teaching awards. Dr. Mehta is an emergency physician at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Toronto. He received his MD at the University of Calgary and his Master's of Medical Education in Pediatric Emergency Medicine Fellowship at the University of Toronto. He's also the recipient of multiple teaching awards. Some of the most commonly misdiagnoses in emergency medicine are pediatric orthopedic injuries. This is because it's often difficult to get a decent history or physical, and many pediatric fractures are occult or difficult to see on x-ray. There's also a huge practice variation out there in how to manage common pediatric orthopedic injuries like ankle fractures, for example, despite some excellent studies that guide us to the best management. In this episode, with the help of Dr. Jonathan Peary and Dr. Sanjay Mehta, two very experienced pediatric ER docs from the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, we'll explore some of the most important general principles in approaching pediatric orthopedics, show how to pick up some commonly missed injuries, and go through the evidence for the best management of some of the more common injuries. We'll discuss distal radius buckle and green stick fractures, to low fractures, ACL tears, kids with an acute limp, toddler fractures, supracondylar fractures, medial epicondyle fractures, and more. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Sanjay Mehta. Welcome, Dr. Mehta and Dr. Piri. All right, let's jump right into our first case. The first case is that of a 15-year-old girl who was playing soccer earlier that day, or football for all our non-North American listeners. And as she went for the ball, she kicked the ground. Immediately, she felt a pop and had a sudden onset of pain in her right knee. She had to be carried off the field. So, Dr. Mehta, is this patient more likely to have a fracture or a ligamentous injury? Well, generally, we know that in kids, the guideline that most practitioners will use is that ligaments are stronger than bones. So the younger the patient, the more likely a knee injury is going to result in a fracture. That being said, in a 15-year-old girl like this, I would think that it's more likely an ACL injury or a tear, just given the mechanism. If the child was younger, then they're obviously less likely to dislocate because of that ligament being stronger than the bone. The other thing to consider would be an avulsion fracture, which can mimic just an isolated ligamentous tear or injury. Once again, probably a little bit more common in younger children. So in a 15-year-old girl, I would think that this is primarily a ligamentous injury. Okay. So generally speaking, the younger the patient is, because the ligaments are stronger than bone, they're more likely to fracture. But there are exceptions to that rule, which we'll talk about. Absolutely. It would be pretty unusual to see an ECL tear in a pre-tween or pre-adolescent child. And I'd be thinking more about fractures. What kind of fractures would you be thinking about in the younger child? The pediatric equivalent of an ACL tear is a tibial spine fracture. So that would be the main one that I'd be looking for, given the mechanism with torque and uh, acceleration, deceleration of the 
femur translating forward. So that would be the main fracture to be looking for in a child with an ACL-like injury mechanism that in an older child you'd be thinking of an ACL tear. Here Dr. Mehta is going to describe the mechanism for an ACL tear and or a tibial spine fracture. So the classic mechanism would be locking or placement of the lower part of the extremity. The foot strikes the ground, is caught, but the upper part of your body continues to translate forward. So there's a little bit of a rotation, usually internal rotation of the upper part of the leg over the lower leg with some anterior translation, which is restricted by the ACL and also impaired by the placement of the tibial spines. So is the reason why that kind of a mechanism would lead to either a fracture or tear of that ligament. And what do these kids usually look like when they come in, Dr. Beery? Variable, actually. So, you know, the classic would be one that comes in with a lot of swelling, unable to wake bear, in a lot of pain. But I've seen others that have surprised me where their degree of swelling and pain and even ability to wake bear is sometimes less than you would expect, and they end up still having a fairly significant injury. So let's review here what the ACL tear history usually is. Typically, the patient is a teenager or older who has a mechanism that Dr. Mehta described where there's a sudden deceleration. Sometimes the patient feels a popping sensation of their knee, which makes the diagnosis more likely, and usually they can't wait bare very well. Classically, you'll see a significant amount of swelling within an hour of the injury, although as Dr. Peary described, some of these patients don't have much swelling at all. So in terms of the physical examination, mm-hmm. can you just go on to tell us what you do for your knee exam in general in kids, right. uh, and then in particular for ACL? So sort of systematically, I start with observation, look to see what position they keep their knee in. They're usually a little bit flexed because they're in pain. There's, I look for the swelling and where it is. Is it more generalized or is it localized to one area? trying to differentiate something that might be intraarticular, such as the ACL or, or tibial spine fracture, versus other ligamentous injuries where it would be lateralized. And then you go through range of motion and uh, identify limitations of range of motion. And then more specifically for the, these injuries that we're talking about, going through some specific testing. Although we often teach our trainees to do the anterior drawer sign. It's one that has a lot of false negatives, mostly because of either pain or use of the muscles in the thigh. They, they're able to sometimes lock their knee to some degree and with the swelling so that it appears that it's stable when it's not. So if feasible, I usually go to the Lockman next. So I like to stand uh, to the side of the patient. Uh, the knee is right in front of me. I take the hand that's going to be holding the thigh and hold it up in the air in a fixed position so that the upper part is fixed. You're taking away the patient's need to hold the leg so that the upper muscles are relaxed. And then with the opposite arm and hand, grabbing the lower extremity of the tib and the fib and moving it up and down and looking for laxity of the tibia and the fibula against the femur. So just to review the physical exam tests you might do when you're thinking about the possibility of an ACL tear or a tibial spine fracture, the Lockman test is a pretty good one. What you do is you keep the knee about 20 degrees flexed and you try to displace the proximal tibia towards yourself. 
the sensitivity for the Lockman test ranges from about 80% to 99% with a specificity of 95%. The patient often begins to guard after an adequate Lockman test is performed, so it's important to complete this maneuver correctly on the first attempt. The anterior jaw test is much less sensitive than the Lockman, and that's the one where you have the knee at 90 degrees flex and try to displace the proximal tibia toward you. Like Dr. Peary said, there's often false negatives with this. So that's the Lockman test and the anterior drawer test. But in fact, the test with the best sensitivity for an ACL rupture is the pivot shift. In this test, you have the patient lying supine with slight traction on the leg of valgus and internal rotational forces applied to the extended knee. Then, as you're maintaining these forces, you flex the knee slowly. If the ACL is ruptured, you'll feel a clunk of the sublux tibia on the distal femur at about 30 degrees of flexion. The other part of the knee exam, which is important in almost all knee injuries, is to do a straight leg raise to rule out extensor mechanism rupture. If in doubt, you can do this with the patient sitting and test knee extension against gravity. Dr. Mehta is now just going to make some general comments about examining knees in kids. Generally, I was also going to highlight the fact that a lot of these tests are going to be really challenging because they're kids. So there's also the issue of swelling and pain, which makes it a bit harder. But even in the fact that it's a child, they're going to be a little bit more flexible. There's going to be more movement. So I think when you're using these kinds of examination maneuvers, it's less fixed in stone that a positive or an abnormal test would necessarily translate into something actually being wrong with the patient. So at this point, you might be asking yourself, does this teenager with a suspected ACL tear need an x-ray? Or another way of asking the same question is, do the Ottawa knee rules apply to kids? So just a reminder to our listeners of what the Ottawa knee rules are. The Ottawa knee rules states that the standard knee series is indicated if any of the following conditions exist. Age over 55 years, isolated tenderness of the patella, tenderness at the head of the fibula, inability to flex the knee 90 degrees, or inability to weight bear immediately after the injury and in the ED for four steps. Multicenter studies have found that the Ottawa knee rules are 100% sensitive in children and capable of reducing the number of patients needing radiographs by 31%. The most important criteria appears to be the ability to bear weight on the injured leg immediately after the injury and again in the ED. If this was the only criteria used in children, another recent study found no significant fractures would be missed and radiographs could be reduced by 53%. This patient that we're talking about in this case was unable to weight bear and so fails the Ottawa knee rules and so should get an x-ray. On the flip side, It's also important to take into account that 20% of ED doc MSK lawsuits in Canada involve failure to order an x-ray, and kids can hide a fracture more easily than adults, so you might want to have a lower threshold for ordering x-rays than you would in adults. Next, we're going to talk about x-ray findings in patients who have a mechanism consistent with an ACL tear. Dr. Peary, what do you look for on x-ray for teenagers who you suspect might have an ACL injury? 
Well, as Dr. Mehta was alluding to earlier, I think the tibial spine fracture, um, when you're thinking about an ACL-type mechanism, is an important one, particularly in that preteen and younger age group. The SCON fracture, which is pretty rare, at least um, in my practice, I've not seen too much, but a vertically-oriented uh, avulsion off the lateral capsule of the proximal tibia. So for those of you who aren't familiar with the Sagan fracture, the Sagan fracture is a vertically oriented avulsion fracture off the lateral capsule of the proximal tibia, as Dr. Peary described. Numerous studies have demonstrated a high association of Sagan fracture with ACL and meniscal tears. Now in kids, a Sagan fracture is much more rare than an anterior tibial spine fracture, but you should look for both of these types of fractures in a patient with an ACL tear type mechanism. Next, we're going to talk about management of ACL tears in the ED. Dr. Mehta, if you do suspect an ACL tear, how do you usually manage them in the ED? Well, I think if I have a, an older child who I'm pretty confident has an ACL tear based on history, and then I do the physical exam and as, examine as much as I can, I'm pretty confident, then my real goal is acute management and leaving the finalizing diagnosis to follow up, whether that be with their primary care doctor or orthopedic clinic. So in the eMERGE, pain is going to be a big part of my approach. So giving them NSAIDs, giving them Tylenol or acetaminophen or morphine, something so that they're comfortable both in the eMERGE and when they leave. In terms of immobilizing the knee itself, it depends on how high caliber an athlete the child is, what their expectations are, what their pain threshold is, the degree of discomfort and swelling that I'm seeing. All of that in conversation with the family guides me as to how likely they're going to need a prolonged immobilization versus a shorter one. And the reason I think that's important to note is the longer that you immobilize, the longer the rehabilitation can take for the quadriceps muscles and so on. So obviously kids do rehabilitate generally much more rapidly than adults, but there is still something to be said about that quad muscle atrophying within two or three days. So when I do decide to immobilize, and most of the time if they're in fair amount of pain, they can't weight bear, they want immobilization, I'll place a long leg splint, a Zimmer splint would be an example, hook them up with some crutches, and then get them follow-up within two to three days. So generally, the management for ACL tear in the emergency department is a long leg splint, or we usually use what's called a Zimmer splint as needed, crutches and range of motion exercises as tolerated until the patient can be re-examined in two or three or even up to five days later once the swelling and pain have improved. In general, patients with ligamentous injuries of the knee, so not only ACL, but MCL, or patients you're not sure what they've injured, but their x-rays are negative, and you suspect a ligament or meniscus injury, these patients should be encouraged to remove their immobilizers and begin gentle range of motion exercises in two or three days to avoid quads atrophy, which would lead to prolonged rehab. Some experts recommend no immobilizers for these so-called soft tissue injuries with weight-bearing as tolerated. In terms of the surgical management of ACL tears, these tears are being repaired more frequently in pediatrics because they're finding improved outcomes with surgery. However, there's no rush to get these patients to the surgeon because most surgeons recommend delaying surgery until full range of motion has been recovered. Next, we're going to talk about additional x-ray views that you might want to consider in the patient with a knee injury. Dr. Mehta, when you're thinking about doing x-rays for these knee injuries, are there any additional views that you think about doing in any particular situations? 
Well, the standard knee x-ray series is going to be an anterior-posterior AP and a lateral view, which is good for the majority of things. But if you're specifically worried about a patellar injury, then you're going to be thinking about ordering a, a skyline view, which is looking at the knee in as much flexion as possible in the direction and plane that's more parallel to the top part of the patella, which gives you better distinction and noting of any injuries or fractures of the patella itself. So if you're thinking about a patellar injury, think about doing a a skyline view. If you're thinking about a tibial spine fracture, plateau fracture, any kind of an avulsion in that area, you may or may not see that on the anterior, posterior, and lateral view. So the view to consider there would be what's called a tunnel view, which is sort of like an anterior oblique. So the knee is placed in a little bit of flexion, and the x-ray shoot is at, I think, 15 to 30 degrees to give you a better distinction of those tibial spines. And that's a bit more sensitive, and it's a nice additional view if you're suspicious to confirm a tibial spine fracture. Okay, so if you've got a teenager who you're suspecting an ACL tear, do a tunnel view. Uh, If you suspect a patellar fracture, then do a skyline view. Dr. Peary, when would you suspect a patellar dislocation or a patellar fracture? Well, the dislocations are pretty straightforward because they come in in their kneecaps off to the side. Patellar subluxation is is an injury that's sometimes hard to identify once the patient comes in. And so taking a careful history, again, they may have felt a pop. They may feel as though their knee was sort of unstable. And when you kind of ask them, did you notice that your kneecap sort of felt like it was not in the right place? Or when you straightened your leg, you felt things kind of went back to the, you know, back to normal, um, may give you a clue that they've had a patellar um, subluxation. Okay, so sometimes they'll they'll sublux their patellar outside the hospital. By the time they get to the hospital, it's exactly. back in place. Exactly, and they may sometimes have quite a bit of um, swelling, and you may be thinking that there's again ligamentous injury, such as ACL, when in fact they may have simply had a, a dislocation. Although I shouldn't say simply because they can recur and they can be a problem and, and some anticipatory education is really important and some of those kids will end up needing follow-up with ortho as well if it keeps recurring. What about patella injury management? Well, as opposed to the ACL, MCL, meniscus, and soft tissue injuries that don't need an immobilizer necessarily, first-time patella dislocations and non-displaced patella fractures should be placed in a knee immobilizer and they too should be encouraged to weight bear as tolerated. Of course, a displaced patella fracture or a patella fracture in which the extensor mechanism is impaired, that is, if the patient can't do a straight leg raise, these are managed differently than the non-displaced patella fractures with a normal straight leg raise. The displaced ones and the ones with an impaired extensor mechanism need orthopedic consultation in the ED as they usually require surgery. Before we leave talking specifically about knees, Remember the golden rule that kids who present with knee pain often have a hip source. So look proximally if the clinical picture doesn't fit. We'll have pictures in the written summary of some of these important knee injuries in kids, as well as links to YouTube videos for some of the maneuvers to examine the knee. So let's move on to case number two. 
Case number two is that of a two and a half year old girl who attends daycare and presents to the emergency department with a two day history of limp and refusal to weight bear. Her parents report a temp of 38.2 degrees at home for the past two days, and she's not eating and drinking as much as usual. They brought her in today because when they attempted to move the child's leg, she started to cry. There's been no significant recent trauma except for a minor trip and fall while running on the sidewalk three days prior. She has had a runny nose and a cough for the last three days, but no difficulty breathing, no vomiting, no diarrhea, and no rash. There's been no recent travel and no contacts. She has no significant past medical history. On exam, the child appears alert but anxious and in pain on mum's lap with no apparent respiratory distress. Her vitals show a temp of 37.9, a heart rate of 124, a respiratory rate of 30, and an O2 sat of 99 on room air. Her ENT exam is normal except for some nasal discharge. Her chest is clear. There's a few scattered bruises on her shins. But when you attempt any movement of the right knee, the child cries. Palpation of the right hip elicits crying as well. The child refuses to weight bear when you attempt to examine her gait. The limping child is a pretty common presentation to the average ED. There's a huge differential diagnosis for the limping child, including septic arthritis, avascular necrosis, slip capital femoral epiphyses, malignancies, and a long list of rheumatologic disorders like JRA and HSP. And then there's the diagnosis outside the limbs like psoas muscle abscess, testicular torsion that can also present with a limp. While some of these are quite serious and require time-sensitive management, we generally like to avoid over-investigating these kids. So we need to have a good approach to the limping child that minimizes needless investigation while picking up the key dangerous diagnoses. So Dr. Mehta, first, can you give us an idea of which of this laundry list of diagnoses that presents with a limp are the most common and the most serious? Well, I would say that septic arthritis is definitely the one that we're looking for. That's by far and away the most dangerous and the one that most docs would be scared of. So that's what I would consider the most serious. Um, in terms of more common entities, transient synovitis or toxic synovitis of the hip is one of the more common entities, either in a peri-infectious or post-infectious setting. A lot of these children, you'll work hard to try and get a diagnosis, but there was one study that showed that uh, almost a quarter had no definitive diagnosis. So that just gives you a breath of how variable diagnosis can be anything from common to serious to, to idiopathic. That being said, that a lot of these kids will have nothing, and some of these kids will have life-threatening diagnoses. What's your general approach to the child with an acute limp? So my general approach is, um, first of all, to get a sense of if the limp is persistent or not. If it's a limp that they had yesterday, that's better today. If a limp that they had a triage but is now better since they've been in the ED, then I'm going to be a little bit less concerned I think if there's a persistent limp, both the parents or other caregivers, triage nurses, yourself are seeing it, then it's real because children very rarely would prefer to come to the hospital. They have much better things to do. So when they complain, it's usually not because they're malingering, it's because there's something wrong. The other thing is that I've learned over time not to always put too much weight on my 10-second assessment of their gait. So even if I think that their gait looks pretty reasonable, it's shocking how much of a detail a parent can note 
and they know their child's limp. So when, when their gait is normal, or if there's anything that's subtly abnormal, I would put more faith on the parent's version of it. So at the end of the day, whether I see it or not is useful, but what's most important for me is that the parents have a concern at all. And if that concern is persistent, then I'm going to be a bit more vigilant. One thing I try and do earlier on in the plan is give them some analgesia. That doesn't necessarily mean that if they're suddenly not limping, they didn't have anything bad, but it's much easier to examine them when they're comfortable. It helps take away one variable, one element of the story. And if the pain was relatively minor, if the limp was relatively minor, and now you've got a pretty normal child, I feel a bit more reassured with that ibuprofen on board that there isn't anything as serious that I'm likely to miss. In terms of the general approach, obviously on history, I'm going to be looking for things that would make me think about septic arthritis versus trauma versus more of a non-local or systemic presentation. So from a septic arthritis point of view, it's going to be more um, the fever, pain, unwell-looking child, persistent limp. From the trauma point of view, I'm going to get a clear history um, that there was... Uh, no limp, trauma, and then a limp, and it's going to be more than just a coincidental thing. And uh, obviously for systemic illnesses, I'm going to have to probe a bit, see if there's any constitutional symptoms, if I'm thinking about a malignancy, any other systemic features, uh, eye changes, rashes, other joints involved, if I'm thinking about something rheumatological, any skin manifestations, if I'm thinking about any of the vasculitides, GI symptoms, if I'm thinking about IBD, and any concerns about travel or other exotic new zoonoses, so TB and things like that. Okay. So generally speaking, when you approach these patients, first you want to think about septic arthritis because it's the most serious. You want to think about trauma and then systemic illnesses. So in terms of a general umbrella, that's one approach you can use, septic arthritis versus trauma versus systemic illness. And Dr. Peary, could you Give us some pearls on the history and physical examination that you use to help tease out the cause of a limp in a child. Well, I think Sanjay, from a history standpoint, mentioned most of the important things. The, the only other thing I would add that we kind of touched on, but I think is really important, is just to make sure that they haven't had some grumblings of some gait disturbance or pain that preceded this because there are some things not necessarily in a two-year-old but maybe a five-year-old like calf birthdays being an example other mechanical causes for limb where you where if you probe you find out oh, they, they may have had a preceding sort of similar symptomatology it just wasn't as impressive just a reminder to our listeners what leg calf perthes disease is it's basically avascular necrosis of the proximal femoral head resulting from decreased blood flow to this area. It usually occurs in kids about 4 to 10 years old, and it's usually an insidious onset, but may occur after an injury to the hip. Early on, the x-ray might be normal, but as the disease progresses, it becomes more and more obvious on the x-ray. If you do suspect this diagnosis, ask your radiologist to take a look at the x-ray and consider doing a bone scan or MRI. Next, Dr. Peary is going to talk about the importance of age when it comes to the kid with the limp. Not a necessarily historical thing, but age is really important. So I was alluding to, you know, the 2 versus the 5 versus the 12. So sun bias of the hips, primarily more of a younger child's disease rather than an older child. So keep in mind for 
uh, synovitis of the hip, although you'd like to hear a history of a preceding or concurrent uh, illness, I'd say a good chunk of them may not actually have a good history for an antecedent illness. That said, that still raises red, red flags, and you still have to be careful that there may be other entities that you may be missing. This kid had a runny nose and what sounded like an upper respiratory tract right. infection. Does that make it more likely to be tenosynovitis of the hip, or does it make it more likely to be septic arthritis? Does that help you at all? It doesn't help me. It actually makes it a little bit more tricky when they're febrile at the time of the presentation and they have an intracurrent illness because it can still be both, unfortunately. Kids get lots of infections. It's sort of like the old question of a kid comes in with a fever and respiratory symptoms, do I worry about urinary tract infection? And if they're at the right age and it's in the middle of viral season, they can have two things going on and or they're uh, respiratory illness is the cause of their uh, septic arthritis. So mm-hmm. I like the ones that have the preceding and come in a febrile. That makes it a little bit more diff- um, easier for me. It's when they're concurrently febrile and have an illness that it makes it hard. And that's exactly the situation with this case you've described. So certainly your vital signs are important. And there are some a uh, couple of red flags. You've got a bit of a tachycardia, despite what is a fairly low-grade temperature. Um, and in fact, I think 37, 8, 37, 9, Depending on how they took that, maybe normal and or the heart rate in you know the 120, 125 makes me a little suspicious. But again, with some analgesia that and a reevaluation, one has to look at that. And then general appearance again, guidelines, but not hard and fast. Septic arthritis, they're going to be a little bit more unwell appearing. Their degree of pain is generally more than t- uh, transient synovitis. Again, a lot of overlap between the two, but. The more you're seeing higher fever, the more you're seeing higher pain, the more you're seeing of anxiety in the patient, the more constant, the more likely you're shifting towards that than just a synovitis. Transient synovitis has this sort of up and down kind of course that's quite, quite common, whereas once you get to a septic arthritis, they tend to have a more constant pain and their inability to weight bear is more persistent. Physical, more specific physical exam, obviously you can do a general exam ruling out other signs of systemic disease, so bruising, petechiae, pallor for things like leukemia, I think are quick and easy, any other affected joints, obviously, rashes. But getting more specifically to the exam, I like to not move that leg around too much. Some of the things I try to do is if a patient's lying down, and they're able to straighten their leg enough that it's in a, they they often come a little bit flexed, sometimes a little bit externally rotated. Is I try to just log roll their leg a little bit just to see if there's irritability in the hip with log rolling. Some gentle log rolling often in synovitis doesn't bother them that much. It's not until you get them up flexed and doing internal external rotation that you really start to see a problem. Whereas if you have a septic joint, any movement of that joint can be quite tender. Then, rather than going to the hip first, rule out other things. So your patient had some complaints of the knee. Knee is often a referred area of pain. So try to keep that hip in a stable position as possible, in a position of comfort. Just gently trying to do some palpation and then gentle range of motion of the knee to make sure it's not the knee. And then quite quickly, usually you can figure out, hmm, it's the hip. And then you're going to start trying to do some formal hip, internal, external rotation, flexion, extension. I do also put sort of an axial load or compression on the hip as well. So I I don't tap the heels so much as I grab the bottom of the foot and put pressure uh, on the hip itself. Uh, Again, in a patient that has a synovitis, that usually doesn't bother them that much, whereas someone who's got 
intra-articular hip pathology, it certainly is often quite painful. I find though, unfortunately, when they've come in, if they're in enough pain, even the synovitis of the hips can be quite uncomfortable with those maneuvers and it can be difficult to differentiate those two diagnoses just on your hip exam. And then finally, gait if it's feasible. A lot of patients aren't able to, but you really do want to get a sense of whether or not they can walk. Sometimes they've not been cooperative with your exam or you've made their pain worse. You may have to come back for that. As Dr. Meadow was saying, give them some ibuprofen, try to manage their pain, tell the parent you're going to kind of pop back and take a look a little bit later, see if you can get Johnny up and walking a bit when we're not around, when he seems a little bit more comfortable, and you might actually get him, and, and the nurses often come back and tell me, oh, did you notice the kid in room five is now walking a little bit down the hall? That can be extremely uh, helpful. So your first exam may not be the only exam you're going to need to try to differentiate is this a weight-bearing or a non-weight-bearing patient because that's a really important step off in terms of decision-making. The only other element that I was going to act is distraction. And uh, I, I probably do more of, of an observational exam rather than an active exam. So obviously it's important to examine the hip if that's what you think. But a lot of what you suspect you can learn just from observation and um, playing games with them, making them jump or roll around or move. The child, who's two and a half in this case, may not realize that there's a medical exam that's actually happening and may forget. And usually if there's restriction or they're stopping, you can usually pinpoint where that pain is coming from just by observation. And if you can distract them with a child life specialist, a volunteer, just blowing bubbles, having the parents do something, read to them, play the TV, often uh, that helps make it a bit easier to localize the features. Okay. So those are some great pearls for the physical exam. Dr. Peary, as you mentioned, even with a good history and a good physical, there's a lot of overlap between septic arthritis and transient synovitis. I just want to remind our listeners that transient synovitis may look like septic arthritis in the early stages. It's a self-limited inflammation of the synovial lining, often preceded by a viral illness that usually resolves within three to 10 days of the onset of symptoms, whereas septic arthritis, on the other hand, can lead acutely to sepsis and significant bone destruction and permanent gait abnormality. So it's important to distinguish these two entities. Let's talk specifically about differentiating septic arthritis from transient synovitis. We mentioned some great pearls on history and physical. Dr. Meta, could you just kind of put it all together for us to tell us about how you determine your pretest probability for septic arthritis versus transient synovitis? In other words, what do you look for in history and physical to help you decide which patient actually needs the full workup for septic arthritis of the hip or not? Yeah, so I think um, for me, it always boils down, as with a lot of clinical entities, to risk and severity. So risk would be the certain subset of patients who have some sort of immunocompromised state where my physical exam or my history is going to be a bit tempered by medications or risk of infection, etc. Sickle cell anemia would be a classic example where they could have a vasoclusive crisis. They may actually present with osteomyelitis. They may have poor opsonization and the risk of encapsulated organisms and septic arthritis. Obviously, diabetes, any underlying joint disease, uh, hemophilia, or any other coagulopathies. So that that is a subset that you can usually tease out on history or identify in physical that is going to be a patient population I'm going to be a bit more aggressive in my workup of. And then severity. So is this a child with mild pain or significant pain? 
Is it a waxing and waning process? As Dr. Peary mentioned, is there a history previous to this, or is this a one-off episode that's persistent? Because obviously the more severe ones are going to lead me to do more workups than the milder ones. The degree of fever, which usually factors into the toxicity and the overall appearance of the child. So if they're afebrile, as our uh, patient was, or they have a very low-grade fever, I may or may not be a bit reassured by that. If the fever is persistent around the clock, hard to, to stop, it's been a longer period of time, then it could still be a sign of something more dangerous and septic arthritis can present without fever. But obviously if they have a high-grade fever, 39.5, 40 degrees, it makes it a bit more obvious that I'm going to go down that pathway. So for me, it's really about risk and severity that help determine who's going to get a workup or not. The ED doc in this case of the two-and-a-half-year-old with a low-grade fever and the limp was concerned about the possibility of septic arthritis and ordered lab work. The white count came back at 14.5, the CRP was 20, and the ESR was 40. So, Dr. Mehta, can you review for us Coker's prediction rule for differentiating septic arthritis from transient synovitis and how useful it is? In particular, if you could talk about the usefulness of the ESR and the CRP and what you do in your practice in terms of using these different factors and helping you predict whether this patient has septic arthritis or not. Sure. So the culture criteria for me is a part of the puzzle. It's a, a diagnostic aid. It doesn't make or break whether I'm going to presume that a child has septic arthritis or not. But obviously it's got some utility. So the criteria upon which that classic study was based on was inability to, to weight bear on the affected or ipsilateral side, an ESR greater than 40, a fever, which has uh, been modified to really focusing on temperatures of 38.5 and above, but generally speaking, a fever of any sort, and then a white count of greater than 12, with or without a left shift or significant neutrophilia or presence of bands. So really, fever, white count, ESR, and inability to weight bear are, are the, the classic culture criteria. And so obviously, the more of these criteria you have, the more likelihood there is based on the subset of sample size from that study that you were going to have a diagnosis of septic arthritis. So this was a study that really focused on trying to determine who is most likely to have the condition, which is very useful in certain patients where you're wondering and you already have a higher index of suspicion. But in my practice, isn't always useful because what's more important is which subset of patients you're not worried, or which subset you don't want to necessarily go any further and do imaging or consultation. So I use it in the sense of the fever, because to me that's the most important, and there is also some evidence that that's probably the best of the group of predictors at identifying the group that has septic arthritis. And obviously if I'm already thinking septic arthritis, and then I have a child who, for example, has three or four of these criteria, then the probability increases. It goes with three criteria from 93% to having all four criteria to having a 99% likelihood. So for me, if it, it's based on that pretest probability, my index of suspicion, and then if I'm already thinking septic arthritis, then I use the Kocher rule because I think it really pushes me in the direction of sealing the deal, so to say, and saying, I really want imaging, I want consultation, admission, therapy, versus a group where I'm a bit on the fence, I'm a bit hesitant, and I'm not as worried based on clinical assessment or, or exam, and the blood work uh, is a bit soft. I also do find in my 
practice pattern that I've become a bit desensitized to abnormal CRPs and ESRs. So for me, an ESR that would be of more concern would be closer to 80. I'm not saying that an ESR of 41 wouldn't worry me, but for me, my threshold, my cutoff point that really gets me going is usually going to be an ESR much higher. And uh, similarly with the CRPs, the lab will tell me that the CRP, I think, is abnormal if it's greater than 8 or 10, but I usually don't get too fussed unless the CRP is, you know, above 20. So basically, the Kocher criteria is, is useful in the sense that it guides the subset of patients that I was already worried about septic arthritis and, and pushes me more in that in that direction. It doesn't really incorporate the CRP. I think there is some utility to the CRP. And someone once told me that the ESR is like the climate and the CRP is like the weather. So when I use both of them, I feel a little bit more confident if they're both elevated and they're both moving in the direction. So to me, that's a little bit of a modification of that rule that gives me a little bit of extra data. So I, I think there is some utility. But once again, if you did this on all patients, and, or you did this on patients that you had a pretty low pretest probability, you probably get a lot of false positives, and you'd probably overcall and over-investigate a lot of kids. So it's all about that clinical judgment. Since that study came out, there's been a few others that have tried to prospectively validate scores, including incorporating the CRP, which was, which was published by CARED et al. Recently, Singal in 2011 published a validating study and showed that weight-bearing plus a normal CRP, and I'm just going to, for the audience, clarify that's 20 milligrams per liter because sometimes it's described in milligrams per deciliter. So less than 20 had a negative predictive value of less than 1%. And so that's important to me. It's important. And I, I would say even fever plus CRP, so lack of fever rather, and a CRP less than 20 also has a very low negative predictive values. Then the likelihood I'm going to go to the next level is low. And I think those three factors for me are important. When you're in the middle, though, that's where it becomes challenging. And that's where that diagnostic acumen and experience are helpful because going down the path of ultrasound is also not a definitive answer, as we'll, I'm sure, discuss shortly. <laughs> okay, so in terms of a patient who has a pretty high pretest probability, you think it is septic arthritis, the Kocher rule will help you rule in and reaffirm that it's septic arthritis, but it doesn't help rule out. In patients with a low pretest probability... You don't really don't think it's septic arthritis, but there's something that's worrying you a little bit. You want to do the workup. If they have no fever plus a CRP less than 20 mm -hmm. in a low pretest probability patient, can rule it out. And weight bearing and a CRP less than 20 in a low pretest probability patient can rule out septic arthritis. So I think that's that's really helpful in terms of the patients on sort of the extreme ends. And then there's like in this case, there's the patients in the middle where you really have to take all those data points and then decide whether you need to go ahead or not. So let's move on with the workup of septic arthritis. Dr. Piri, you had mentioned the role of ultrasound in the workup of a limping child. Can you tell us what you see as the role for ultrasound in these kids? In particular, if there's no effusion on the ultrasound, are you finished your workup for septic arthritis? When would you pull the trigger to ask to ortho to get an aspiration to rule out septic arthritis? How do you use the ultrasound in, in your diagnostic workup for these kids? 
Well, hopefully by using your history, your physical, and then using some of these prediction rules, you've reduced the amount of patients who you're going to send for ultrasound to a smaller subset. You're then stuck with a dilemma, not so much of finding an ultrasound that doesn't have an effusion, but one that does. And so unfortunately, both synovitis and septic arthritis can both have effusions. That being said, much, much less, obviously, in transient synovitis. So if they were on the lower risk side and they didn't have an effusion or an ultrasound, I'd be pretty comfortable not taking it to the next step and consulting orthopedics. However, if they were on the higher end of the spectrum and you did find an effusion, even if it wasn't a large one, then I'm more likely to consult ortho. The decision, though, to then take them to the OR because they need an aspiration for confirmation is, is again, challenging. And I would say that even of those that we do send for ortho, only a certain percentage of those actually go to the OR. It's an invasive procedure, and there is a certain amount of weighing of risks and benefits. Obviously, the risk is the damage to the cartilage. The downside would be the risks of having the procedure, potential infection, you know, general anesthetic, etc. So it depends a little also where you're working. And in a tertiary care center, we have ortho on call, readily accessible, and we may have a lower threshold to be able to get that consultation quickly. And there, I was just going to add that there is some value to the experience and quality of the radiologist assessment itself because uh, we're maybe a little bit blessed and lucky in our institution because sometimes we can actually ask the radiologist to specifically comment on the synovium. So if the synovium itself is thickened and there's a relatively mild diffusion, and as Dr. Perry mentioned, you are already in a lower to moderate risk, you could maybe use your clinical assessment to say this is more likely synovial disease rather than a primarily septic joint process versus if there's no synovial thickening or there's moderate to large effusion and you're in a higher pretest probability or you're sort of in that gray zone where you're going to be a bit more cautious, you're going to put more weight and say that there's more likelihood of, of a septic arthritis rather than the synovia. There is an exception, in a, and in medicine this frequently happens, a subset of patients for whom ultimately the diagnosis is made that a lot of the markers or the ultrasound may be normal initially. So these are the challenging ones, the ones that you're catching fairly early. They may have not had a fever yet, or if they have, it's low grade. Their presentation is still in the early stages. Their markers may be sort of intermediary. Uh, those are the challenging ones, and there are some patients who have had normal ultrasounds without an effusion. You can't th- just say, okay, I'm going to refer all those sort of patients, and I'm, I'm, I'm never going to miss a, a case. And there is always that personal ability to try to balance test minimization or procedural minimization versus being cautious and, and not overly referring every patient otherwise if you applied that sort of mentality to to all patients, you'd be referring a lot of patients. And it's like the evolution of meningitis and other appendicitis, other high-risk entities. We can only use the information in its wisest way at the time of the presentation in order to make decisions. In terms of those kids who probably have transient synovitis of the hip, but there's a small possibility that it could be an early septic arthritis. Mm-hmm. Let's say you're deciding to send them home. Mm-hmm. What discharge instructions do you give them? Well, I think that's key, and that's the same with the conditions I just mentioned, whether it be meningitis or appendicitis. It's progression of their illness. So the degree of their pain that they're having, the degree of ability to weight bear, 
the, t the height of the temperature and their overall appearance. If it's going in the wrong direction and you had a good discussion and the parents understand what those symptoms mean, there isn't a language barrier or you know they're not picking up on the explanation, they don't live too far away, they can readily reaccess care, then they would be appropriate patients to send home and to return if their symptoms progressed. The other thing is that uh, even transient cytovitis, even though it may not be septic, can still have a pressure effect. So there can be uh, an effusion, usually mild or moderate, that can itself put pressure on the circulation to the femoral head, especially in diagnosis is in the hip. So you, you still have to consider a complication of transient cytovitis, which once again would be if there was persistent pain, where at the 14-day mark, you'd have to wonder about uh, avascular necrosis of that femoral head. So uh, I think as Dr. Perry highlighted, uh, follow-up and, and parent education for things to look out for is really key. Okay, so while most of these kids with transient synovitis of the hip, their course will last between 3 and 14 days or so, they'll resolve spontaneously. There is a small subset of kids who, if they have a large enough effusion, that will persist beyond two weeks, and in those kids, you have to think about avascular necrosis. And other conditions such as post-infectious arthritis or reactive arthritis, or the start of a uh, rheumatological condition. We haven't talked specifically about treatment for septic arthritis, the one question that always comes up is when or if to start IV antibiotics on patients who suspect have septic arthritis before they've had their joint aspirated. So, Dr. Peary, do you start empiric IV antibiotics on the patient who you suspect has septic arthritis before the joint is aspirated? Usually not, but I have the luxury of having in-house ortho and the ability for those patients to be worked up fairly expeditiously. The patient that is in a center that needs to be transferred, the patient whose symptoms have been going on for quite a long time, who may, maybe there's a delay in ability to go to the OR, there's other, you know, cases it's in the middle of the night. If that concern comes up, then I think it's really a clinical judgment and you have to decide, should I just go ahead and, and start treating them? And I don't think you would be faulted if you did so. The aspirate can still occur. You can still look at total white cells, and just like meningitis, it's a high-risk disease, and when in doubt, I would err on the side of caution. Different than somebody who's only going to be waiting for an hour or two, who's earlier on in their presentation, who's quite stable, who you can wait uh, reasonably for. Provided you've got blood cultures and you're geographically challenged to get them to the point of definitive care, I don't think it's unreasonable that you would do antibiotics. It's never ideal. There's diagnoses like osteomyelitis, which can present similarly as well, that can get masked with even one course of antibiotics. But uh, as Dr. Perry mentioned, I think there are still other markers from the joint aspirate that would be biochemically useful in making the diagnosis if there had been an impaired course of antibiotics. So we're going to continue talking about the limping child. 
let's say you've got a limping toddler who otherwise appears well, your physical exam doesn't reveal much, the lower extremity x-rays are negative, and the non-specific lab tests don't point you in any real direction. We might tell the parents that the child has a sprain or a strain and send them home. Dr. Mehta, why is this a potentially dangerous practice, and what might you do with this kind of patient? Well, I think generally it's important to be humbled by kids. Just because things don't come up on the physical exam doesn't mean that there isn't a diagnosis there to be concerned about. We know from history that sprains and strains are relatively uncommon. The ligaments themselves are usually not the weakest link in the chain. So uh, always doubt yourself when you say everything's going to be okay and that there's nothing. And especially if there's parental concern, I think there's potential danger in just ignoring the presenting complaint. Occult fractures do get missed. It's not uncommon. But if there's any doubt, it's always important to reassess and consider splinting or providing some sort of a backup in place in case there is an occult fracture that you might have missed. So what are some of the more common missed occult fractures in toddlers or even in older kids? So I think uh, the toddler's fracture is probably the, the, the hallmark in this group. It's uh, a bit tricky to see unless you're looking for it, and you often don't have a clinical suspicion around it. You're doing x-rays because you want to hunt to see if there's a, a fracture that could explain the symptom. The other group would obviously be the fractures that are uh, avulsions or chips in nature where you may or may not see a tiny fragment and a good radiologist can obviously help clarify if you have access to them that uh, that's uh, an abnormality rather than just assuming it's artifact, etc. And I think the final group for me would probably be the curved or more plastic fractures. So kids' bones are inherently a little bit more plastic. They bend and mold almost like uh, wet twigs. They don't always snap like a dry branch. And um, so a bowing fracture, a green stick fracture. So anything where there's some curvature, but the cortex itself is relatively stable, sometimes get a bit underappreciated. You may or may not even appreciate any bowing or curvature clinically, but they can definitely be a result of trauma and can explain pain. So I really would say that a practice where you're just saying that there's a sprain or strain and not really considering occult fractures is a potentially dangerous one. So one of the fractures that you had mentioned was the toddler's fracture, which is a common occult fracture. Could you just go through for us what a toddler's fracture is and how it usually manifests? So a toddler's fracture is just uh, an eponym given to a spiral fracture, usually in the tibia. Usual age is in the toddling population, so anywhere from eight or nine months up to about four or five years. Usually common, I would say, uh, majority of cases in the two to three-year-old population where they may or may not be cognitively and verbally advanced to be able to describe where their pain is and localize. So simply based on age, demographics, you have to think about this in any toddler who's uh, in the weight-bearing age where there's suddenly an unexplainable limp. There may or may not be a clear history of trauma but if there's been any injuries or there's the construable potential that there was an injury, then uh, that usually explains the spiral oblique torque placed on that tibia. So once again, the, the foot plants, their body rotates, they fall. 
Amazingly, a lot of kids with this fracture continue to ambulate. Some of them can even run and jump and climb, but the parents will really distinguish that there's still a subtle limp, that there's something that's abnormal about them. On clinical exam, you may or may not detect any tenderness. It may be relatively minimal or subtle. You can try and put or reproduce the torque on the limb itself. So place the child, if you can get them to cooperate and stay calm with you, uh, in the parent's lap and uh, let their knee and lower extremities swing freely and then just immobilize their knee and then take their um, foot and just twist it internally and externally and then hunt literally like a detective using your thumb or finger up the tibia just uh, working slowly to see if you can detect any spot, point, or tenderness. But often you're not going to get that ability to localize, and uh, you're just going to presume that there might be something there and then go for x-rays. Now, if you do x-rays, we usually do AP and lateral of the, the tibia and the fibulas. You can see the fractures there. Sometimes you have to play with the gain and the intensity to to bring it out. But sometimes if you suspect an area or you're really worried, you may have to do an oblique, either an internal or external oblique view to really comment because the x-rays can still be normal in about a quarter of the cases. Just like with any other fracture or occult fractures in general, there's always the potential that um, because the injury is fresh and it happened and the bones are still relatively plastic, the fracture itself hasn't um, fully visualized. It's not completely in, in an ossified area. So you may just end up presuming that there is an injury there that you're not seeing, but that'll only come out on a follow-up x-ray in 7 to 10 days. Okay, so with the toddler fractures in particular... They can look pretty good. They could even be running on the limb, listen to the parents, try and do a good physical exam, even though you might not get point tenderness in in that age group. It's hard to get that. Try and do a good physical. And uh, if you do suspect a taller fracture, then it's definitely worth asking for oblique views because that'll increase your sensitivity. And in terms of how to manage these kids with non-displaced tallest fractures, we should immobilize in an above-knee splint with the knee at about 15 or 20 degrees flexion and have them follow up with ortho in about a week or so. What about the patients that you don't see a fracture on x-ray? So you have a normal x-ray, but you still suspect a toddler's fracture. You had mentioned that about 25% of these kids on standard views will have normal x-rays. How do you manage those kids? So I think that 25% where you would have normal x-rays would probably be data taken from a clinician who may or may not be looking specifically for the toddler's fracture. And if you did oblique views, I think that would drop that miss rate a bit lower. Dr. Mehta here is going to comment on the utility of using ultrasound to diagnose a toddler's fracture. Consider the evolving era uh, era of ultrasound and um, how sometimes that can be a diagnostic utility. I don't think there's any strong evidence supporting the utility of ultrasound in isolation of anything else. But I think as a tool up your sleeve, if there's any doubt about a diagnosis, I think ultrasound is useful, at least for something like a toddler's fracture. So in clinical conditions where the sensitivity of plain x-rays are not great, there's an emerging use of ultrasound now to help in the diagnostic accuracy and has been shown in some locations to be superior to plain x-rays. Yeah, I feel wherever you're thinking about a third view, an oblique view, you know, something more than the typical, like in a skull or a tibia or a long bone, 
that's when ultrasound for me is the alternate route to go. I think the other thing is uh, I would imagine that the population where you'd be struggling to see an actual fracture line would generally be more likely in a kid who's ambulating and looks better. So if you've got a child who's got a significant limp where you're really, really thinking toddler's fracture, uh, it would be relatively unusual to not see any evidence at all radiologically. But I guess if you were thinking of it regardless and the pain was that significant, then you'd have to immobilize them. That would be the safest practice. I always feel that that's the textbook approach. The practical approach, the pragmatic one, is a conversation that you have with the family. Because the majority of kids with toddler's fractures, as I was saying, tend to ambulate relatively well, look well, are functioning, and often may actually present in a delayed fashion. They may not come in for two or three days when the parent realizes that whatever is explaining the limp hasn't gone away and um, leads them into the emergency department where you make the diagnosis. And often I, I have a bit of an internal struggle saying, well, there's something broken, but it's not unstable, and your child is actually ambulating relatively well, and um, putting them into a above-knee immobilizer this child is not going to be able to use crutches. They're not going to be at the height or developmental maturity to be able to do that. And uh, it's not an unstable fracture in that sense. So to put a child through plaster and wearing that for two or three weeks is not a path that some parents would choose. So once again, I think it depends on the severity of the pain, how long the limp has been going on, how confident you are radiologically. But if there's any concern, then I think the safest approach is to long leg splint. But if the child is doing relatively well, the pain is not that bad, the parents are pretty reasonable, I think it's safe to have that conversation, talk about the pros and the cons, ensure some follow-up, and uh, not a long leg splint if possible. So we've talked about in our general approach here first about ruling out septic arthritis. Now we've been talking about occult fractures. We had mentioned then also looking for systemic illnesses. The one diagnosis that doesn't fit exactly into this approach is slip capital femoral epiphyses. Dr. Peary, what do we need to know about slip, about SCIFI or slip capital femoral epiphysis in our daily practice of being emergency doctors? Well, this is a very important diagnosis because it has um, fairly significant long-term functional impairment if not diagnosed early. They need pinning and their outcomes are much better if they're caught early rather than late. The other challenge with them is that they can present somewhat subtly. The history of trauma may be minor or non-existent. And they not infrequently can complain of radiated pain into the thigh or to the knee rather than tell you, oh, my hip is hurting. So some important demographics. These are usually the pre-fused. So they're, they're tweens and teens, but they're still skeletally immature, obviously. And they're typically overweight. The pain may have preceded, so they may have had a, uh, a time where they say they've had some pain in that hip or in that knee or that thigh previously, seem to be okay, and then they represent, or of course it may be the first presentation. So I think the diagnostic suspicion is this, you know, the size of the patient, the age of the patient, and the fact that they don't always localize that discomfort that well. So then the next important piece is the physical exam, obviously, and again, differentiating hip pathology from knee pathology or thigh pathology. And again, your physical exam maneuvers are very important here, particularly internal rotation of the hip, but there may be pain with external abduction, flexion. It just depends a little on the degree of the slip. 
but typically internal rotation is the most painful. And again, they may prefer their leg in a slightly flexed and externally rotated position when you're examining them. Other key features are the diagnostic workup. Very important to get a frog's leg in addition to your standard AP views and compare both sides. And remembering that this disease can be bilateral as well as unilateral. So in particular, I'm looking at the frog's legs, particularly in subtle slips. Again, the first thing I look for is symmetry, and in particular, I look at the medial lip of the epiphysis to see that the degree of extension beyond the neck of the femur is similar on both sides. And then the next thing I look at is what's called Klein's line, which is on the other side or the external part of the femoral neck. If you draw a line tangential to that, it should intersect part of the, the femoral head. And you compare both sides to look for that difference. And as it slips, the femoral head starts to go from having you know a small portion of it intersected by this line to being completely medial to it. And with greater slips, it becomes very pronounced. And then you can see on the medial side a greater lip on the medial side. So catching it early is really important. It can be subtle. We'll have a picture of Klein's line on the written summary. We've talked about toddler's fractures. When it comes to tibia fractures, often the topic of non-accidental trauma comes up. While this topic is a huge one that we won't be covering in its entirety in this episode, I think we do need to touch on one or two key pearls when it comes to lower extremity fractures in toddlers and infants. When should we suspect non-accidental trauma and pull the trigger in involving children's aid, society, etc., when we find a lower extremity fracture in an infant or a toddler? So traditionally there were concerns about certain fracture types that were of higher risk and associated with non-accidental trauma. However, there's some emerging literature suggests that, that in fact the history may be more important than in fact the radiological findings. Certainly posterior rib fractures are still abuse until proven otherwise. And metaphyseal chip fractures are very commonly associated with non-accidental injury, or what's called a bucket handle uh, fracture. But spiral versus transverse, certain long bone versus other, there's poor sensitivity and specificity, unfortunately, just to engage a workup for suspected abuse based on simply a radiological diagnosis, other than the ones that I just mentioned. So the key features for me are really around the history. And so time to presentation, vague explanation of mechanism, inconsistent pattern of the actual injury description, inconsistency with the developmental stage of the child, inconsistency between different witnesses, and recognizing that these aren't in and themselves a gold standard either. It's not uncommon for some fractures to start out not being that impressive, and so a parent does delay seeking advice because, oh, I thought it was just a sprain or some sort of more benign injury, and so they do seek attention later on. And that's okay, but there should be consistency with the story of how it happened, and there should be some appropriate concern for the consequences of the injury and of course it should be age appropriate for the development, developmental stage and i think the biggest issue is we sometimes don't ask them 
And that's probably the take home point here is that we don't document well time of injury mechanism, who witnessed it, that sort of thing when we're documenting our injuries. And I think it's just really important to have a systematic approach and then, and then hopefully you will, will not miss these very important injuries. Mm-hmm. So while there's some factors that are more associated with non-accidental trauma, there's really no fracture on its own that can be used to just diagnose child maltreatment. And any type of fracture could be the result of child maltreatment. So there's no fracture that rules it in and there's no fracture that rules it out. No, but there are certain ones that are going to require a very congruent history. So posterior rib fractures should not occur unless you've been in a motor vehicle accident and you somehow got thrown from the car and hit a pole or, you know, there should be a mechanism that would correlate with it. Because otherwise, yeah, you don't do that just from falling off your bike or falling from a a swing. The catchy part is... um... For toddler's fractures, any long bone fractures where there's torsion, because you often don't get a clear history, you can get a delay to to seeking care. There may or may not be consistency in the presentation itself. So it's it's the one I find the most challenging, where I think we should really think about abuse and maltreatment in every single child and in every single fracture that we see. But I, I often struggle with the toddler's fractures, because if you go by the book, it actually meets a lot of the criteria that would warrant concern. So I think it always goes down to that clinical judgment and, and playing detective a bit and, and zoning in on a few of those critical details and making sure that as much of it fits as possible so it's it's a challenge, and I don't think we're going to be able to address it in a simple manner, but I think just always think about abuse and, and go through and do a great job documenting, as, as Dr. Peary mentioned, but I'm sure we're all going to miss cases on occasion because we made the wrong call. So we've talked about knees, we've talked about tibias, let's move on to the ankle now. We have a six-year-old boy who's running during recess at school and twists his ankle, and he's unable to walk afterwards. Never heard about a case like this before. Um, On exam, he's tender and swollen maximally over the distal fibula, and the x-ray is normal. So Dr. Peary, in adults, the mother of all clinical decision rules in emergency medicine is the Ottawa ankle rules, which help us decide who needs an x-ray and who doesn't. The question is, can we apply the Ottawa ankle rules to kids? And in practice, do you use the Ottawa ankle rules? How useful is it? The challenge is, is that there are other alternative diagnoses in children that you have to think about as opposed to in adults. So the classic one is the Salter-Harris fractures, of which type 1 is always the one that's challenged people because the x-rays are normal, so that's separation through the physis um, with a normal x-ray. So there's a lot of debate as to, when you look at the literature regarding auto-ankle rules and the other rules that are out there, as to what do you define as a low-risk versus a high-risk injury. There was a study recently out of Montreal Children's that actually tried to prospectively validate the auto-ankle rules the low-risk exam rule, which was actually one done by Kathy Buddhist here at SickKids, and the malleolar zone algorithms. And sort of the cut to the chase, the Ottawa ankle rules had the highest sensitivity. In other words, it was the most likely not to miss what was considered the high-risk fractures. 
versus the lowest exam, which had um, much better specificity, but would have missed uh, a few uh, fractures. So in the study where the sensitivity for the Ottawa ankle rules in children was found to be 100%, they did not consider Salter 1 fractures of the distal fibula or avulsions of equal to or less than 3 millimeters to be significant because of their excellent clinical outcome regardless of intervention. However, if you include all fractures, including the Salter 1s and the little avulsion fractures, the sensitivity of the Ottawa ankle rules in children decreases to only 80%. So it kind of depends on how significant you think the Salter 1s and the little avulsion fractures are, which we'll talk about coming up. This gets us to the real meat of the question is, is how is it important to diagnose those particular fractures? Is the outcomes different? Is the management different? And I think that's where a lot of the crux of the management decision-making literature has subsequently taken off and where we know more about the outcomes of these patients and what we traditionally thought were more higher risk, in fact, may not be. There still is the question, though, around parental concerns about knowing that diagnosis, maybe a little less so in a Salter Harris 1, but certainly some parents might actually be very concerned about knowing about an avulsion fracture or maybe a type 2 Salter Harris fracture. Others may be less concerned if you can convince them that the management would be similar in either case. So while the studies that excluded Salter 1s and avulsion and relatively insignificant fractures, their sensitivity was 100% to rule out a significant fracture, Correct. all the studies that, that had the Salter 1s and the avulsion fractures in their study, the sensitivity decreased to around 80%. Now let's go on to talk about the significance of these Salter 1 fractures, these avulsion fractures, Salter 2 fractures, you know, how significant are these injuries? Before we do that, Dr. Mehta, could you just review for us what the Salter-Harris classification is, and then we'll talk about the significance of them. So the Salter-Harris classification is really looking at categorizing injuries that are in or around the growth plate. So it's a very pediatric-specific classification system derived by Dr. Salter and Harris uh, many, many years ago. There's five types If you imagine a picture of the metaphysis, physis, or growth plate, and the epiphysis with the epiphysis being lower and the metaphysis being higher in a diagrammatic format, then you can actually apply a commonly used mnemonic, which is called Salter. So Salter-Harris-1 would be a straight-across fracture. So basically, Salter-Harris-1 is a fracture through the physis that's primarily cartilaginous and uh, impacts the growth plate, doesn't go into either the metaphysis or the epiphysis. Salter-Harris 2, using that format, uh, would be an above fracture, a.k.a. the fracture would really be above the physis or away from the joint, so it goes through the metaphysis and then to the physis and then through the physis. Salter-Harris 3 would be lower, so the L for lower would mean that the fracture was primarily through the epiphysis, so there would be physial and epiphyseal uh, involvement. And then Salter-Harris 4 would be T for through, so it would be through and through. So it would be a fracture that would be both above and below the physis, so through the metaphysis, physis, and epiphysis. And then Salter-Harris 5, it's a bit of a struggle to fit into the mnemonic. The R can be used for rammed, or it can also be ER for the ER part of Salter coming from the R from crushed. I've seen many different versions of it, but basically the physis has been crushed or 
devastated. I always think of it in sort of the, the lawnmower situation where it's basically been um, uh, heavily damaged. So basically the mnemonic is S-A-L-T-R for Salter Harris 1 through to 5. So let's say you've got, like in this case, you've got a kid who's rolled their ankle, the x-rays are negative. You assume that there might be a Salter 1 because they're tender at the right place. We used to be taught that any injury to the growth plate could cause growth abnormalities and cause chronic gait problems. Are Salter 1 fractures of the ankle really significant or can we treat them like a sprain? So it's a great question. I think uh, it's a question that many people have probably wondered through the years. Um, it's almost a bit of a theoretical concept to have the concept of a Salter Harris 1 where you don't really see it on an x-ray. Classically, there's no widening of the growth plate and you just imagine that it's there. And so we called it a fracture to focus on the fact that the growth plate was one of the weaker parts in the immature skeleton. And so being a fracture, the complication, therefore, would be impact on growth. But we know at the same time that the classification system, which is great, it has its utility, is over 50 years old. And over time, um, we've learned doesn't necessarily translate into any clinically significant outcomes. So um, what's interesting is Kathy Budis with radiology at SickKids just a few years ago had the, the benefit of having access to MRI and was able to um, get some really amazing quality imaging on a bunch of ankles. And along with some previous studies that have looked at just clinical outcomes has shown that maybe we're a bit over specific with calling these Salter Harris ones, but maybe they actually should be classified as more sprains and strains. So I led earlier on in our episode with the mention that uh, in kids, we usually don't see ligamentous injuries. We're thinking more fractures. This kind of evidence has the potential to throw that whole notion upside down. So in a subset of patients, maybe primarily the Salter Harris ones, where there is maybe an injury to the growth plate, maybe there isn't. And maybe it truly is a ligamentous injury, at least when we've seen some data from MRI modeling and so on. So I think what's most important, regardless of whether it's growth plate or not, is the importance of clinical follow-up. And from experience and time, and I don't think this is going to change too much, we've learned that um, the best approach is to focus on the pain, the risk, the severity, and just engaging the parents in that dialogue. And if there's significant conserves and you want to play conservative, put them in some sort of immobilizing device. If they're functioning well and they're doing quite nicely, then a removable apparatus or something that is temporizing is probably better because we know that the clinical outcomes are going to be good. Okay. So with these studies uh, you're talking about, when they did the MRI, the vast majority of them were reclassified as sprains, and they saw that the growth plate was perfectly fine. Exactly. So basically the bottom line is that we've probably been too conservative in treating these so-called Salter 1 fractures, that a lot of these so-called fractures of uh, the growth plate end up being sprains, and they, they do clinically well no matter what we do. Um, and we really we should be guided clinically with what the child's ankle looks like and what the parents' preferences are. Well, and the corollary to that is is those that do have Salter Harris ones do well. So in other words, this concern around growth arrest is really pretty non-existent, and the outcomes are good. So that one can be reassured that even in the ones that you may have classified as a sprain or a strain or a soft tissue injury that end up having a Salter Harris one, that you're not doing them a disservice by treating them as such. 
Okay. The caveat to that is that you need to distinguish between an absolutely normal X-ray and where the growth plate, there might be a little bit of widening. I think even in that group where you really are feeling that there's a millimeter or two of growth growth plate widening, hypothetically, let's say you compared it against the other side or talked to radiology and were given that go-ahead, I still think would have really good outcomes. So at the end of the day, for me, this is a game changer in the sense that maybe our categorization has been off, but I think has reaffirmed that the prognosis and the approach and the management has been bang on, is that uh, most of these kids don't really need too much management. They're going to do well regardless. Okay, so just to clarify that, even if you do see a little bit of growth plate widening on the x-ray, those kids do well as well. Okay. Now, we so we've talked about Salter 1. What about Salter 2? How do you treat the run-of-the-mill, non-displaced Salter 2 lateral malleolus fracture in kids? That is the fracture that we see above the physis or away from the joint. So in Kathy's study uh, where she looked at more rigid immobilization with backslab versus the use of an air stirrup or the branded model we use is air cast, the outcomes were exactly the same in patients who had either that type or, sol- or diagnosed as either Salter Harris or soft tissue injury. So most of these patients now um, are either, if they're very minor, getting no immobilization or getting the stirrup brace immobilizer. The question that I have is that that's assuming you know that that diagnosis is. And so the challenge is, is that if we're not doing the x-ray in the first place in these lower risk ones that have them, is there's no real subset analysis done on these studies of that small cohort. So the challenge I find is knowing what the follow-up is going to be for, for that sort of group, particularly in the patient that's a, in competitive sports. Does the rehab component, the length of time really matter? In her study, the overall group did just as well, one way or the other. I worry a little bit about those where you see a Salter Harris too. You know, how long should they be in that immobilizer for? And that's that's I think the still a question mark for me. But we do know that that's appropriate treatment, and that these patients can be put in the stirrup if they're able to weight bear at the time of the injury. Then I allow them to do so. Those that are having too much pain, too much swelling, I usually put them in the immobilizer plus, give them crutches, and tell them to use the crutches until their pain is, is um, improved and they're able to weight bear, which is usually in most cases within a, about a week, sometimes longer. Okay, so just from a practical perspective, these removable ankle braces or ankle stirrups, they go on over the socks and then you can still they can still wear a shoe. Absolutely. They're easily removable. And like you said, the ones who are having a little bit more difficulty clinically you give them crutches to use as needed. Correct. Okay, so we've talked about these low-risk fractures, the Salter 1s, the Salter 2s, the avulsion fractures. Let's move on to another case where we'll present a more significant fracture. The case is out of a 13-year-old boy who was running in the playground when he got his foot caught on the edge of a play structure, making his foot rotate externally. 
He was able to weight bear after the injury and in the ED. He complains of anterior ankle pain. On exam, there's no swelling, but he is tender on the anterior ankle. He has no medial or lateral malleolus tenderness, no navicular tenderness, and no proximal fibula tenderness. He complains of pain with dorsiflexion of the foot. Dr. Mehta, in this kind of patient, would you get an x-ray? Absolutely. So I think for me, when you're looking at an ankle, some clinicians spend a little bit of time. Some people are able to do a fast exam. But whatever you do, always examine the anterior joint line. So classically, because we're used to seeing pattern recognition, you'll expect that there'll be tenderness because the uh, ankle inverted or everted over the lateral, the medial alveolus, and often there is. But when the primary injury, the pain, the swelling is in the anterior element, uh, just in the front of the tibia distally, that to me is a bit of a red flag, especially with this kind of a mechanism where there was uh, sort of a forced external rotation for looking at a more significant growth plate injury, something like a Salter Harris 3 or a 4. So just hearing this story, I'm a bit concerned. The other thing is uh, the age of the child. So if this is a 3-year-old my approach would maybe be a bit different. But when you're seeing a child who's in the midst of puberty, the physial line is starting to fuse. So there is still growth potential left, but the medial aspect of it is closing at a different pace than the lateral one. So because it's not a a completely open joint line, the way that the force translates through that uh, area is going to be a bit different in this age as it would be in a younger and older patient. So for me, absolutely, I would x-ray this patient because I'd be worried about a Salter Harris 3 or, or higher fracture. So this is one good example of a patient who would require an x-ray who has a negative auto-ankle rule. Okay, so in this case, an x-ray was ordered, which was initially read as negative, by the emergency doc, but after review by the radiologists, it showed a subtle tillo fracture, which is an intraarticular Salter Harris 3 fracture involving an avulsion of the distal tibia. That is the anterolateral tibial epiphysis. We'll have a picture of the tillo fracture in the written summary. Dr. Mehta, what do we need to know about tillo fractures in terms of the mechanism, where to look for them, and why they're really easily missed? So I think what's interesting about these fractures is that they're so age-specific. When I think of uh, the TLO fractures in particular, it's got a classic presentation around the, the teenage years. The um, growth plate is le- really changing. You don't know at what point it's at, but you do know that it closes primarily medially and then it goes lateral. So there's a virtual space there that's fused and a virtual space that's still open. So it gives a completely different direction and vector for the for the force to go through. Through. So we know with TLO fractures, you actually don't need high energy mechanisms. This can actually happen with a relatively low energy mechanism. But as long as there's fixation of the foot and a forced external rotation of that foot, or I guess medial rotation or internal rotation of the leg on that foot, then this in this age group would be something to think about. Obviously, you have to think about it a bit earlier in girls. And so interestingly, I often ask female patients who come in with ankle injuries at this age if they've started to have their periods. Because um, if they are pre- or perimenarchal, that can sometimes influence how likely it is, is that uh, the physes have started to close. So if you're in the range pretty much from 11 to 15, male or female, I'm going to be thinking about these uh, these TLO fractures. The other group um, to think about is what's called a triplanar fracture, which is a Salter-Harris 2 
and three fracture. It's a bit of a difficult thing to explain um, verbally. It's a three-dimensional concept, but um, similar in the sense that it's relatively age-specific. We tend to see it more in this early to mid-adolescent population, where on the AP view, you often will see a Salter Harris two or three, and then on the lateral, you'll see a Salter Harris three or two. So if you just looked at it on one view, you would think that it would be a little bit more benign than it actually is. And because it's a combination, the force literally goes in two or three different dimensions. It's actually a relatively complicated fracture, making it unstable. And so it's important for both the telo fractures and the triplanar fractures to think about it because it's specific to that time of closing, uh, partial closure of the the physis, and also because they're relatively unstable fractures. So as compared to other Salter-Harris 1s, Salter-Harris 2s, avulsion fractures, where conservative management, casting, splinting, removable, etc., is more the issue, these fractures absolutely need casting, But uh, more importantly, they need orthopedic consultation because a lot of them end up needing further imaging to clarify the three-dimensional impact as well as a high likelihood of needing operative management with some sort of internal fixation, whether it be pinning or otherwise. I think some of the challenges about making the diagnosis in those two fractures is also the appearance on the x-ray. So in the case of the TLO, the fractured line is in a vertical plane and can be sometimes quite thin and is often overlooked or not considered. And so that's how it's frequently missed. So if you know this fracture, you know the age group, and you're thinking of it, and you're thinking to yourself, oh, i got to look for a vertical line going through the epiphysis in this kid, or should I, let's see if this tibia is starting to fuse or not, then you won't miss it. And then similarly, for the triplanar, the AP view does not show the oblique fracture most frequently, unless it's significantly displaced, or at least the ones that are often missed. And in the lateral view, the overlap of the uh, fibula on the tibia can make it hard to see the oblique fracture sometimes. So you really, again, you have to be looking for it and know about it uh, in order to pick it up. And I think that's why sometimes they're missed um, just in, in terms of interpreting the radiograph. So to low fractures and triplanar fractures can be caused by a relatively benign mechanism with a relatively benign physical exam and subtle x-ray findings. Nonetheless, they require in-ED orthoreferral for a consideration of an open reduction in internal fixation. Wow, ortho ain't so intuitive, that's for sure. Next, we're going to move from the lower extremity to the upper extremity and talk about distal radius fractures. Okay, so we've talked a lot about lower extremity orthopedic injuries in kids. We're going to move on to the upper extremity. This case is that of a 12-year-old boy who was running on the sidewalk, tripped and fell on an outstretched right hand. He complains of pain at his wrist only, and his examination from his elbow to his snuff box reveals slight tenderness at the distal radius. He's neurovascularly intact. Dr. Peary, what do you look for in physical to help you predict whether a wrist injury in a child is likely to be a fracture or not? Well, I find that most kids actually localize quite well. So if they've got localized point tenderness, 
and or swelling in that region, they've got a reasonably high chance of having a fracture. Now, it may not be an important in terms of a high risk type of fracture, but I find those the most important markers. Now, of course, there's a subset of kids that everything hurts and you touch here, you touch there, and it's all painful. But the majority of them are actually pretty good at localizing where their injury is. Okay, so this is a little bit different than ankles. For wrists, you might have a lower threshold to do an x-ray. Correct. When it comes to distal radius fractures, there's buckle fractures, there's green stick fractures. So let's first talk about buckle fractures and how to manage them. With kids who come in with your run-of-the-mill buckle fracture of the distal radius, how are they managed? Well, for the longest time, these patients were put in some form of plaster immobilization. And Dr. Bodas and others have shown that, in fact, these patients do extremely well with immobilization with some form of brace, which can be taken on and off. Their outcomes are universally excellent. Their satisfaction with the ability to take it on and off is much superior than uh, with the plaster, and outcomes are the same. These removable splints you're talking about, they're the Velcro wrist splints that you can just even buy in the pharmacy. Yeah, well, we actually use a uh, molded uh, version. Uh, this was the one that was used in Dr. Buddhist's study. And so they're put in a microwave for a specified amount of time. They're heated, and then you can actually mold them so that they're comfortable. So a variety of different kinds of removable splints, but the idea is that it's a removable splint that they can take off, that they don't need to go in the shower with, etc. Correct. So buckle fractures of the distal radius are stable injuries with little or no chance of displacement, and they can be effectively treated with removable splints. In fact, there's three RCTs that show better physical function, less difficulty with activities, the ability to return to sports sooner, and pain scores that are either not significantly different when compared to short-arm casts, or even less than with casting. There's even a study with just a soft bandage showing similar outcomes compared to a short-arm cast. Not only that, but studies have shown that removal of the splint can be done safely at home by the parents rather than at a fracture clinic, guided by the child's symptoms. This, of course, assumes that the parents are agreeable and are given good discharge instructions with regards to when they might need to seek medical care. And parents prefer the removal of the splint at home over having to follow up in a fracture clinic. Again, the duration of immobilization and return to sports are guided by the patient's symptoms, but as a general ballpark, most kids are ready to return to regular activity after about three weeks. So that's buckle fractures. Next, Dr. Mehta is going to talk about green stick fractures. Those are the ones where there's one cortex broken and the other one is intact. So we've talked about the management of distal radius buckle fractures. Dr. Mehta, what about green stick fractures at the distal radius? How are minimally angulated green stick fractures managing kids as far as removable splint versus cast goes? So the way I look at green stick fractures that have minimal angulation, you know, less than 15 degrees, uh, even some mild transverse fractures, is that it's all about satisfaction, comfort, patient-driven outcomes. And what we've seen in a lot of emerging literature, Kathy Budis is one from Toronto, Amy Plint from Ottawa, a number of other authors, is that consistently the trend always moves in the direction of a splint as compared to a cast. And so something that is more removable, something is more tolerable, is still consistently going to have 
equal, if not better outcomes, depending on the study. So in most of the studies, they're comparing some sort of a short arm cast that needs to stay on for four to six weeks versus a removable splint that can basically be managed as per the parents and patients' um, preference. Um, They're usually done in kids who are a little bit older, but not teenagers, so usually like the 5 or 6 to 11 or 12-year-olds. And um, the mean fracture angulation did not differ significantly between a splint and a cast. Uh, Consistently, the kids and the parents preferred the flexibility of how to apply or, or remove the removable splints. There's very little difference in terms of all the specific measures of uh, activities of daily living and functional outcomes. So bottom line is the approach to minimally angulated green stick fractures and uh, even some transverse fractures is to move in the direction of removable splints. Okay. When you say minimally angulated, what angle are you talking about? What what degree of angulation are you talking about? So the degree of angulation depends a little bit on age, depends on the location. So the further distal that you are, the closer to the physis, you're usually able to accept even more angulation because there's more osteoblasts and osteoclasts that can migrate and help mold. And it's amazing. And even I was a non-believer, but when you see x-rays pre and post injury months, years later, the amount of remodeling that a skeletally immature child can can tolerate is is fantastic. So um, usually for green sticks, it's about 15 degrees. Obviously, in a younger child, you'll accept even more. So you can accept sometimes up to 25 or 30 degrees, depending on how distal the uh, injury itself is. Obviously, if you're more mid-shaft or more mid-metaphyseal in in nature, then you're going to accept um, a little bit less, but uh, even down to 15 or 20 degrees is is reasonable. So it depends a little bit on age, depends on location in the long bone, but generally speaking, we're talking in the range of anywhere from 15 to 30 degrees that you're going to use to to decide whether you, you try the strategy or not. That's consistent with some of the literature that I've read. Some of the numbers, less than five years old, you can accept up to 30 degrees. Five to 10 years old, you can accept up to 20 degrees. And 10 to 12 years old, you can accept up to 10, 15 degrees. Yeah, so the one caveat to to the numbers is actually looking at the arm and looking at its appearance in terms of how straight it appears. If it's very obviously clinically angulated and deviated, I would say most of the time our our orthopedic doctors will uh, attempt a reduction in those patients. If if functionally and by appearance they look relatively straight and they're young, then they'll accept uh, these numbers. So current evidence dictates that for pediatric distal radius fractures, which include buckle fractures, green stick fractures that are minimally angulated, or minimally angulated transverse fractures even, the standard of care should be the use of a removable wrist immobilizer. One key principle when it comes to assessing the angulation of a distal radius fracture in kids is that bone in kids remodels really well in the dorsal volar plane, but not so well in the radial ulnar plane. So when we're talking about acceptable angulation, we're talking about in the dorsal volar plane, the up and down plane. If there's any radial or ulnar displacement or angulation, those usually need to be reduced because those don't remodel so well. The next question is, let's say you've got an angulated distal radius fracture uh, that's not acceptable and you end up reducing it in the emergency department. Should these kids go in a below elbow splint or an above elbow splint? 
you know, I think traditionally we've learned that kids with a significant distal radius fracture should be put in an above elbow splint, but I understand that there's some literature suggesting that they really don't need an above elbow splint, that they might be just as well off with a below elbow splint and have just as good an outcome. Yeah, so there is some emerging literature. Um, a BOEM study from a few years ago looked at two arms, um, no pun intended, where one was uh, randomized to get a below and the other to get an above uh, elbow cast for fractures of the forearm that needed to be reduced. And uh, when they did follow-ups at the one week and, and obviously at the six-week post-injury mark, there was really no clinically apparent difference and there was no functional difference between the two arms of the study. That being said, I think tradition still drives a lot of the management. So in my experience, most of the forearm fractures that have needed reduction are still managed with above elbow casting, but it should be interesting to see what happens over the next few years as more literature emerges. So up until now, we've been talking about relatively low risk distal radius fractures. Remember that kids with open fractures, with neurovascular compromise, with fracture dislocations, or with Salter 3 or higher fractures usually require orthopedic consultation in the ED. However, kids with displaced fractures that have the allowable age-related degree of angulation that we talked about can be managed with splinting and outpatient follow-up. And patients with buckle fractures can even be managed without outpatient follow-up, just guided by the child's symptoms and managed by the parents at home. And again, while those with excessive angulation beyond the acceptable amount, rotational deformity, or deformity in the radial ulnar plane, they should undergo closed reduction in the ED either by an ED doc or by an orthopedic surgeon. Next, we're going to talk about pain management in pediatric fractures. What are your drugs of choice in the ED for kids who are in pain with fractures? And what's your drug of choice for sending kids home? In the ED, I think you've got a number of options, and so it depends a little on their pain scores. So obviously having appropriate pain scores for the age of the child is really important. Over-the-counter medications certainly are our first go-to, so I have a preference for ibuprofen as my first line, plus or minus uh, Tylenol. The next step really depends on what you think is going to happen next, and so... Those that I think are going to need a reduction, they're usually, or whose pain scores are quite high, they usually need something more than that. And so your options are more stronger oral medications, such as an oral opioid. Intranasal fentanyl, for example, is uh, now being used more commonly in our institution. And then if you've got the time and the resources, uh, and you know they're going for a reduction and they're going to need a sedation, then uh, your options are then IV medications. And again, you have lots of options there. IV morphine, if you want something a little longer acting, IV fentanyl, short acting, and some emerging literature on the use of low-dose ketamine for pain as well, which I think we're going to start seeing coming into the fore as more studies come out. So lots of lots of options for the emergency visit component of your pain control. Going home, some of the minor fractures really don't need anything more than ibuprofen, and some of the studies actually have shown that ibuprofen is equal to or superior to both acetaminophen, acetaminophen plus codeine, and ibuprofen being equal to ibuprofen plus um, a narcotic as well. So having said that, though, some of those studies show that some of these patients have still inadequate 
pain control. And I guess this is the challenge is, is that sometimes narcotics, although they're stronger, are not the greatest either for relieving pain control or have more side effects that are not well tolerated by the patients, whether that be nausea, dizziness, it just makes them feel unwell. My understanding is that as sick kids, they don't even carry codeine anymore. Is that true? Yes, that's, that's true. We've taken codeine um, off our formulary for a couple of reasons. One is a subset of patients that are felt to not metabolize the drug and therefore get no effect from it. And you'll hear as high as 20% in the literature, although I'm not sure if it's if that's really true, but certainly there is a, a large enough group that do not get any effect from codeine. And then there are these super metabolizers that can have very serious adverse events. Our then drug currently is morphine um, orally, which again is all right for pain control, certainly provides relief in some sets of, of patients, but is not always well tolerated, as I mentioned before. Okay. Could you actually just go over the dosing for morphine in kids? Yeah, so our formulary, if you look at if you look it up, at our hospital is between 0.2 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram for an oral dose. 0.5 is a lot of um, morphine. So I would say for most kids with uncomplicated musculoskeletal injuries, 0.2 is more than adequate at the time of the injury. And in fact, when they're going home, I might even use less than that. So somewhere between 0.1 and 0.2, because usually they're immobilized at that point. Their pain scores are not as high as when they first came into the hospital. I, I tend to be a little bit more aggressive in front loading. Um, so just a couple of points just to add to what Dr. Perry said. So in the hospital arsenal, you also have intranasal ketamine, for which there's some emerging literature. The other thing is um, there's some uh, evidence for painful situations, headaches and things, of combining acetaminophen and ibuprofen together. There may be a synergistic effect. I think, uh, as Dr. Perry mentioned, that uh, ibuprofen stands out even when it's compared to acetaminophen, acetaminophen plus codeine, ibuprofen plus codeine, etc. But even at best, about 50% of kids in most of the studies are having adequate uh, pain control. So there's still a huge subset that aren't getting enough. So ibuprofen is great, but it's probably not enough. And then uh, the final thing in the, in the hospital domain, which is once again something that a skill that a lot of people are learning is regional anesthesia guided by ultrasound. So um, for forearms, you know, doing a brachial plexus or medial nerve, um, and then obviously for femoral fractures, doing femoral nerve blocks. Um, with ultrasound, that's a little bit of a game changer. It makes you a bit more comfortable to do something rather than blindly. And then when you're going home, as Dr. Perry mentioned, uh, codeine, and there's actually a lot of reservation around oxycodone as well because of the, the metabolizing effects, but there's actually a Health Canada warning in place. So uh, between ages 6 and 12, it was never really indicated under 6 anyway. So pretty much under age 12, codeine is, uh, there's a black box warning. So that's an important thing to consider. And um, morphine has a certain stigma around it. So even though codeine, codeine is metabolized into morphine, I find a lot of parents sometimes uh, are hesitant to use the morphine. So for that reason, because I know that the pain with ibuprofen and maybe the splint is not going to be ideal, I do usually go with a bit of a higher dose. So I usually go a little bit towards the 0.3 to 0.5 per kilo, although I usually max out at 5 to 10 milligrams absolute. And um, I find that patients are unlikely to take them, and I'm not giving them huge quantities. I'm giving them relatively you know, low numbers and obviously explain to them the risks and the complications and side effects. But uh, when they're in the hospital, I usually give them a good dose because I just want them to be as comfortable 
as possible, especially if I'm not anticipating that they're going to be getting a proper IV procedural sedation. And when they go home, I think uh, the other thing is um, if I'm worried that they might give too much or they might use the dose too liberally, is to use a longer-acting NSAID like naproxen. So we've talked about lower extremity injuries, we've talked about distal radius fractures, let's move on to the elbow. The case is that of a 12-year-old boy who was running on the sidewalk, tripped and fell on his outstretched right hand. Sound familiar? (laughs) He complains of pain at his elbow this time. Examination from the shoulder to the snuff box reveals slight swelling and tenderness at the elbow with inability to extend the elbow completely. He's neurovascularly intact. So this is another case of a fouche, or fallen outstretched hand. Dr. Mehta, can you review for us the common injuries in general that you would expect to see with fouches in kids? You know, in, in adults, we see snuff box, distal radius, radial head, proximal humerus fractures with fouches. How is that normal pattern of injury that we see in adults with a fouche different for kids? Well, generally speaking, uh, the most common fractures in kids are clavicle. So you should always think clavicle whenever there's a fall, whether it be in an outstretched hand or otherwise. And obviously, you've got to look at the whole patient, make sure there's no head injury or anything else. But um, the way I would think about it would be just working your way up the arm. So um, scaphoid fractures distal or mid-shaft radial fractures, ulnar fractures. Also beware of the fact that there may be more than one fracture or one more than one injury, so you can have a distal forearm fracture either to the radius of the ulna, and you can have a proximal injury as well, like a radial head dislocation, a Montegia fracture pattern. Interestingly, you can have pulled elbows, which can present with a fall, supracondylar fractures, lateral condyle fractures, medial condyle fractures, proximal mid-shaft humeral fractures, so really, you just want to be comprehensive in your approach and make sure that both systemically and up the entire upper extremity, you're considering every possible location. So generally, in kids, you want to look more for supracondylar fractures. They can be nursemaid, pulled elbows, clavicle fractures, as opposed to adults where they're more likely to get a radial head fracture instead of a supracondylar fracture, and you don't get nursemaid elbows in adults, <laughs> thankfully. All right, let's talk a little bit about supracondylar fractures. Supracondylar fractures are the most common elbow fracture in children, and they're rarely seen in patients older than 15 years old. Dr. Peary, can you review for us the mechanism of injury for a supracondylar fracture, and what would you expect on physical exam? In particular, how good is the ability to extend the elbow completely at ruling out fractures of the elbow in kids? So the first part of your question, I think, is sort of mechanism. Fouche is one of them, so the trip and the fall and the arm being out. But this is also a very common injury with monkey bar and falls injuries, where their arm, again, it's outstretched or it's they're, as they're falling down, they're trying to break their fall. In terms of the clinical findings, it's variable. Some of them have marked swelling. It depends on the degree of their injury. Um, others, it can be minor. But I do think, actually, range of motion is quite sensitive for elbow fractures in general. So either supracondylar or radial head neck fractures, most of them 
cannot fully extend their arm. And so any any kid who's had a fall, an injury, who can't fully extend their arms certainly raises my suspicion. One in 20 kids with elbow fractures will have a second fracture somewhere else, like the wrist, for example. So don't forget the golden rule to look at the joint above and below the joint in question. In other words, avoid premature closure when you find that supracondylar fracture. So you've got your kid with a foosh, and let's say they can't extend all the way, they're a bit swollen at the elbow, and they're tender, and you decide to do an x-ray. Can you review for us your approach to the pediatric elbow x-ray? Sure. It's a challenge. This is an, you know, an area where there's a, a lot of ossification centers, there's overlap. And I think, again, knowing some fracture patterns is very helpful, but you certainly want to have a, a systematic approach to your radiological interpretation and then put it into the context of the age of the patient and those fracture patterns. So the first thing I look for are fat pads. And so you can accept an anterior fat pad. Usually it's only two or three millimeters. It's fairly close to the anterior humeral line. Um, some people erroneously will see a fat pad and say, okay, that's normal. When you're looking at quite a bulging fat pad or a sale sign. And in fact, some of them require, you know, if you have the ability on your uh, system, whatever you're using, to change the contrast and brightness to help you with that soft tissue delineation. You can often see a sort of a rounded or enlarged anterior fat pad, which is pathologic. It's not normal. And then any posterior fat pad, of course, is, is pathologic. And then I look at my lines. So the first one I'm looking at is the anterior humeral line. I'm making sure that it's um, sort of bisecting or going through the posterior one-third of the capitellum. And so that's most helpful generally for supracondylar fractures, and especially subtle ones and or occult uh, ones. And you'll just notice that the anterior humeral line is more going through the anterior or uh, front portion of the capitellum or in cases that need referral, they're actually displaced right behind that line. So uh, anterior humeral line really important. And uh, while you're looking in that area, I do look at the sort of the hourglass sign, which is on the lateral, the appearance of the distal humerus, um, which can be abnormal in those fractures as well as uh, films that are not done correctly then on the right angle. My other line is the mid-radial capitellar line. And that's very important for radial head dislocations or Montegia fractures where there's an associated ulnar fracture. So those are my two lines that I look at next. And then I'm looking at ossification centers and then again, the common areas for fractures. So the ossification, the ossification centers are challenging. We often use this mnemonic crito to help us delineate the emergence of these. These are not the same time that they close. And so there's a couple of specific fractures that are helpful for, for this. Certainly for lateral condylar and epicondylar fractures, you're not sure if that little chip there is a, a normal ossification center or an avulsion fracture. That's where it can be helpful. So just to sort of go through it, the uh, mnemonic, C stands for the capitellum, R is for radial head, I is the internal epicondyle or the medial epicondyle, uh, T trochlea, O olecranon and E external epicondyl or, or lateral. So for example, if they've had a mechanism that would fit with a lateral condylar fracture and there's this piece of bone sticking off the external piece and you don't have a trochlea and you don't have an olecranon, then that's a problem. That shouldn't be there at that point. So in certain injury patterns, it's helpful. And then for me, then it's knowing where I'm looking for certain 
injuries. And so super coddlers are, are the most common. We do see radial head and neck fractures. Usually they're a little bit older, so there's kind of an overlap. The younger five to 10 is much more the peak super coddler, sort of eight to 14 and adults, obviously, that's when the radial head, radial neck. So there's kind of a transition in the ages of those patterns. Electronons can be tricky, so there's all these extra ossification centers at the end of the electronon that often get confused as being abnormal. They can be normal. And then, of course, the medial epicondyl and the lateral condylar fractures being the other ones. So those are the types of patterns, and, and so I do a quick scanning of those areas after I've looked at my fat pads, my lines, and crypto. And just about the crypto, should we mention that it's an order of ossification centers, but it's not necessarily tied to any hard ages. So we know that the capitellum will always ossify, for example, before the medial condyle, but not that it'll happen at a particular age. We do see that girls tend to ossify a bit earlier than boys. And generally speaking, the order starts around age three and you usually finish ossifying by about 11 or 12, but there's no hard or fast rules. It's roughly every two years for a new ossification center starting at around age two or three for the capitolum. But there is variability for sure. Mm -hmm. I personally find the crypto mnemonic very hard to remember and rather confusing. Um, what I sometimes do is instead of going through the whole crypto thing, uh, if I suspect that there might be something there, I'm not sure, I'll x-ray the contralateral side. So one of the challenges with uh, the ossification centers is remembering the mnemonic for one, and then trying to um, decide whether this degree of displacement of an ossification center is normal or whether it's not. And there are a few options that you have. One option is to radiograph the other side. However, there is asymmetry sometimes in the emergence of ossification centers from one side to the other, and doesn't guarantee that there is or isn't a fracture there, but that's certainly one possible possibility. The second is a, um, there's a book called Keats that has normal variants as well as a, he, has, he is also uh, the author of another book that looks at the normal retrographic appearance of boys and girls at different ages. And it's very helpful um, if you have it in your merch department. And I use it quite frequently to help me to decide, oh yeah, a nine-year-old boy elbow should or shouldn't have this appearance. So those two books are helpful. And then I think the most important part is go back to your patient and clinically examine them. If that electron is not tender, then that's probably not a fracture. That's just an ossification center. Whereas if they've got medial epicondylar tenderness, they can't extend their arm, they've got some swelling there and they fell off, whatever it was they fell off, that's probably a fracture. So I think they're, you know, when in doubt, um, your patient often can tell you the answer. some nice pictures of the elbow x-ray in the written summary. Dr. Mehta, supracondylar fractures put kids at high risk for neurologic industry. Industry. Where did that word come from? 
for orthopedic surgeons. It has kept them in business. For yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It is good industry. No conflicts of interest. Dr. Meta, supracondylar fractures put kids at high risk for neurologic injury, up to 20% of patients, especially if the fracture is displaced, and especially if there's lateral or medial displacement. And displacement occurs in more than 75% of these fractures. Can you review for us how to check neurologic status in kids with upper extremity injuries? So the challenge in kids is always getting a cooperative exam. When it's done in a medical traditional sense, it becomes quite alien and foreign, and often children will put up resistance, especially the younger children. So engaging them, making this part of your exam is fun and, and playful is uh, is the most useful thing. So I often will play a game, and uh, rather than do specific things to the patient, I'll get them to demonstrate to me what they can do. But you can try and work around, you can give them some analgesia, reassess, and it's important obviously to do this serially to get a sense. So for me, a passing grade is that the child can do a reasonable amount of it, not necessarily it in detail. And the areas that you're checking are really the different nerves so uh, primarily radial, median, and uh, an ulnar. So for radial, I'll just make it a game and I'll say, give me a thumbs up. And if they can really dorsiflex and abduct that thumb, then uh, the radial nerve is probably working. For the medial nerve, I'll probably um, get them to give me an AOK, some sort of a pinching maneuver, something to really assess their ability to use any elements of their anterior interosseous nerves or branches. So um, even just pumping kind of their, their fist as a power to the people, generally speaking, is a fun thing and, and means that their medial nerve is probably working. And then the ulnar um, nerve, we uh, usually test by getting them to pretend that they are taking their index and middle finger and making a cutting-like motion like scissors. So I'll give them a piece of paper to cut through, or I'll get them to do the peace sign if they know what that means. And uh, if they're able to do that, then that means the ulnar nerve is working. So just to review the motor exam again, for the radial nerve, ask the patient to give you the thumbs up. For the median nerve, ask the patient to give you a power to the people fist. And for the anterior interosseous branch, ask them to pinch a piece of paper and hold it to test their pincer grasp. And lastly, for the ulnar, ask them to use their index and middle finger like a scissors to cut or to do a peace sign if they're old enough to know what that is. So that's for the motor. For the sensory, there is always a bit of a variety in the population of where the nerve dermatomes and um, what areas of sensation um, are, are tethered to what particular nerve. But generally speaking, for the radial, I'll just quickly feel over their first dorsal web space to make sure that that's working. For the median, I'll go either over the second or the third fingertip. And uh, for the ulnar, I'll usually go as uh, ulnar lateral as I can, which is usually over the fifth fingertip. So once again, you want to distract the child, get them to close their eyes, check it on both sides for comparison purposes. But usually it's a relatively quick thing. And so doing the motor and sensory exam on kids, uh, I've found, is, is more of a game than anything. Great. So that's the neurologic exam. What about the circulatory exam? How do you check the circulation in the distal extremity for patients with supracondylar fracture? So I find this area particularly challenging in a patient where there's been a delay in them either getting to you from another center or a delay in presentation because the longer the fracture is present, the more likely that there's going to be swelling and that there's going to be risk of compartment syndrome. That being said, compartment syndrome is very difficult to diagnose in kids 
is not a common occurrence. And so it's not something that we see that frequently. So my safest practice is always not to do one exam, but to get a bench mark or baseline exam and then to do it serially. So I'll even ask for neurovitals every hour or two. And usually in these patients, if they're likely to need some sort of operative management orthopedic consultation, I'm going to try and get them under the care of the orthopedic doctors to be responsible for monitoring things. Often if there's a potential for delay to consultation or prolonged stay in your ED, then I'm going to be a little bit more careful. But in terms of, uh, of injuries to vasculature, you're going to expect significant swelling, bruising, pain out of proportion, coolness, um, pallor. And so obviously you're going to feel the pulses. You're going to look at the fingertips to see if there's good capillary refill. Um, brachial artery is uh, an injury that you definitely want to consider, but it's not, um, like I said, a common thing that we see in, in pediatric patients and usually implies that there's been a significant displacement, which usually warrants more urgent reduction of that fracture. So these are patients where you're going to be checking for presence of pulses, color, temperature, pain, swelling out of proportion, bruising. You usually have already identified that there's a higher risk injury that's more likely to impair the vasculature. You're already going to be leaning in the direction of orthopedic consultation or admission. So usually you're just monitoring to see if there's a change. And if there is, then to speak to your orthopedic consult, uh, about uh, potentially doing a reduction to immediately address the issue. Typically, these patients sometimes are splinted um, uh, in around 90 degrees, and as pressure builds up, this is part of the issue around vascular compromise. Simply by trying to extend a little bit more, maybe 10 or 15 degrees, can often relieve some of this uh, compression and improve the blood flow. Okay, so one of the things you can do in the emergency department before the orthopedic surgeon gets to them is simply extend their elbow and that can help to uh, restore flow. Yes, and I'd also recommend the use of Dopplers. If you're having troubles getting good pulses, then sometimes Dopplers will help you to determine blood flow. Okay, so this idea of extending the elbow a bit brings up the question of how do you immobilize supracondylar fractures? And let's say they have a totally non-displaced supracondylar fracture, they're neurovascularly intact, and you might send them home for follow-up with your orthopedic specialist. How do you immobilize them? So these are the patients we're not worried about uh, vascular compromise. They've not got a lot of swelling usually. They're usually fairly stable. And so what I do for these patients is an above-elbow immobilization. Usually I have two slabs. I have a back slab, which is uh, applied to the upper and lower part of the arm. And uh, really important here in particular, because a lot of these kids are younger, they're like five, six, seven years of age, I find one of the most common mistakes made in that, the application of that part of the back slab is that it's not extended high enough up the humerus. Humerus at that point is only like about five inches long. And uh, the ones that I see done poorly, they've only got a very small component covering their humerus. This is extended to the hand. And usually I have the patient in around 90 degrees of flexion in a midline position. And then I apply a sugar tong or U-shaped gutter around the humerus to provide more stabilization and to prevent them from hinging within the cast. So I've seen some patients that have just had a back slab 
the posterior element is not very far up the humerus. There's no sugar tongue or, or um, lateral immobilization. And in fact, when you take their arm, you can often move their humerus w- within the cast. So I think the important, those are the important features of immobilization. We try to avoid using circumferential casts in these circumstances. There's no room for uh, the swelling in, and would be a... Uh, absolute contraindication in a supracondylar fracture where compartment syndrome and neurovascular injuries are high. The totally non-displaced supracondylar fractures, they don't need any operation. Which supracondylar fractures need to be fixed to avoid long-term morbidity? Well, my rule of thumb has always been if the angulation is such that the capitellum is behind the anterior humeral line, I usually want to get an orthopedic consultation. Within that group, there are some that they're comfortable still managing with a long-arm cast. Dr. Mehta, so the non-displaced supracondylar fractures with minimal swelling can be immobilized and sent home for follow-up. What about the displaced or angulated fractures? Do all of them need immediate orthopedic consultation? Can some of those be splinted and sent home for follow-up with orthopedics? What's your guideline in terms of managing minimally displaced or minimally angulated supracondylar fractures? So with supracondylar fractures, any clinical external deformity where you're actually seeing a warped or obviously curved distal humerus is going to be a a high likelihood that it's going to need some sort of uh, operative management. In terms of radiologically, it's going to be significant displacement more than two or three millimeters. Or if you're actually going to have a break in the contiguity, so you actually have a fragment that is obviously separate and and not in uh, opposition with the, the other parts of the humerus. Dr. Mehta, so we've talked about the pearls and pitfalls when it comes to supracondylar fractures. Another relatively common elbow injury in young patients is the medial epicondylar fracture. Could you just go through for us the mechanism of injury for a medial epicondylar fracture? What's the usual story? What do they look like on x-ray and how we should manage them? If you can get a little bit more history around the true nature of the fall, you may or may not be able to distinguish a higher risk fracture for a medial lateral epicondylar injury because there's usually some rotation in addition to just flexion extension that happens. So if they fell and they're pretty confident that there was some rotation as they fell, then there's probably going to be more torque on the medial lateral aspects, which is going to make you think more about the epicondylar injuries. That being said, I think it's good practice whenever you see a child who's had a foosh and you're thinking about an elbow injury, supracondylars may be the most common, but it's always good to think about uh, epicondyles. So for medial and lateral epicondyles, as Dr. Peary mentioned, you're going to go through the cretonemonic and make sure that the age of the patient, the mechanism, if you have it, the clinical exam of where their, their point tenderness is, fits with a higher likelihood that there is going to be something you're looking for and that what you're seeing on the x-ray if you see a fragment or an avulsion piece is not an ossification center so if you're confident with that generally speaking the amount of displacement varies a bit in terms of how conservative or aggressive your your local orthopedic doctors are in my experience for the lateral epicondyles they've also um, looked at about 
two millimeters or less as being relatively non-displaced and as being something that can be backslabbed and sugar-tongued, as Dr. Perry mentioned, and followed up. You may have to put a bit more plaster on the sugar-tongue because there's going to be more tenderness over the lateral aspect just to shield it. And then uh, for the medial epicondyle injuries, you're, you're also going to be tolerating about greater than two to three millimeters before you're going to act on them. There is one type of medial epicondylar fracture you have to be careful, and that's a complete avulsion and entrapment within joint. And so sometimes looking on the AP, again, if you're not remembering the cryptomnemonic, you may overlook this and, and may not even notice that the internal epicondyl is even supposed to be there. Uh, but by looking at the lateral, you may notice that there's seems to be an extra bony fragment that's not supposed to be there. And the issue with this is that if they're missed, there's significant long-term sequelae. So it's something to uh, keep in mind in a patient that's clearly got swelling, clearly tender over that area, and you're looking at this x-ray and thinking it's normal. And just to clarify also, these uh, injuries are less common. They're not as common as uh, some of the other fractures we've been talking about. So let's move on from fractures of the elbow to subluxations of the elbow. That is the the so-called nursemaid elbow or the pulled elbow. These are very common. We'll throw out a case here. Two sibling boys are playing at home, and mom leaves the room for a moment, and the three-year-old cries out. Mom returns to the room and eventually notices that the three-year-old boy is not moving his arm. When you see him in the eMERGE, he's running around the department in no apparent distress, He has no signs of head injury, and when you examine his elbow, there's no obvious swelling, but he withdraws when you palpate the elbow. He's neurovascularly intact. So in this kind of patient, first, Dr. Peary, would you order an x-ray? So for me, the history is really important. So if a patient's had a very clear history of being pulled, then I don't order x-rays. I simply go straight to the reduction maneuver. If there's been a fall, if the mechanism is unclear and you're not certain, then I think it's patient by patient. The patient you described is running around and very active, probably not a significant fracture, so you might err on the side of going ahead and trying a maneuver first. But a lot of them actually aren't like that. They're actually sitting in a parent's lap, they're uncomfortable, they're holding their arm adducted and internally rotated and pronated and they won't let you examine them and it's difficult to know those if you don't have a good history and you're not sure you may choose to do an x-ray but the majority of them probably 90 percent or more with a nice history no i don't x-ray those so let's say you've decided with this three-year-old that it's most likely a nursemaid elbow a pulled elbow and you want to go to reduce it there's reduction techniques where you use supination, and there's reduction techniques where you use pronation. Which is your preferred technique, and what does the literature say about the best technique for nursemaid elbows? So when I started my training, it was always supination and followed by some flexion, and that was the method that was widely used. And probably about 10 years ago, roughly, I think some of the first articles started coming out uh, describing hyperpronation. And... I guess the bottom line first is they're both very effective. So if you look at the numbers, success rates for both techniques are greater than probably around 85%. But in that particular study, the hyperpronation 
was closer to 95%. And it was a, a randomized uh, crossover study so that if you failed in one arm, you were then reappointed to the other. And there was greater success, again, in those that had an original failure in the hyperpronation. So I started using it, and I actually found that it was very effective. And now it's my go-to first choice. And if I fail after several attempts, then I'll try the alternative method. The reason partly that I like it is that the patients are often in that position. They're often pronated with their arm on their lap or uh, at their side. And so the need to then supinate and draw them in the opposite direction is less. The longer and the slower you do it, the more time the and more pain that the patient has, the more likely they are to, to try and tense and may affect your success rate. So that's, uh, at least in my theoretical mind, why it may actually be more helpful. I put my thumb and or finger on the radial head while I'm doing this, and I like to do my maneuver quickly. So I don't give them a lot of time to tense, and it's a very quick and rapid movement that I find most successful. And you could probably see videos online, but the other successful thing is that I purposely put my hand into a bit of hyperpronation when I'm doing it because I'm going to be supinating my hand. So, you know, my one hand is on their elbow, as Dr. Perry mentioned, with the thumb on the radial head to feel the click or the clunk. Sometimes you can hear it as it reduces. But I'll purposely put my hand into a little bit of hyperpronation while I'm grabbing their hand which is already in a little bit of pronation, to give me more degrees to go so that I can really hyperpronate their arm as far as possible because sometimes you do have to kind of go extreme. That's why it's called hyper and um, really feel that that click or clunk. Uh, I usually, if I feel that, I'm pretty confident that it's been reduced on that, then we'll just supinate and flex just for good measure and usually the elbow suddenly moves a lot more freely. I've already got a sense of confidence that I've done the deed, walk away, come back four or five minutes later, see the child acting as if nothing had happened. But um, it also gives me the opportunity if I fail, although I, uh, Dr. Peary mentioned from the evidence and personally, anecdotally, I haven't really failed too many times with the hyperpronation. It gives you an opportunity to use the supination flexion technique as well. Let's say you suspect a nursemaid elbow and you've tried to reduce it a few times, but you don't feel that click and you're not convinced that it's reduced. You know, you come back a few minutes later and the kid's still not moving his arm. What do you do then? So I usually x-ray just to make sure I've not missed a fracture, particularly in those patients where the history wasn't classic and make sure I'm not missing. And again, I'm usually looking for more subtle things. So again, fat pads and effusion being um, important. But assuming that the x-ray is normal, then I've got a couple of options. So if the story is unclear and I'm suspecting that there may or may not be a fracture, then the conservative choice would be to put them in a immobilization and have them follow up in the clinic. For those that were really classic, I don't always do that. So if the story was really of a poll and I'm not sure and is this kid now just cranky and irritable and we've done multiple attempts and they're in discomfort then sometimes I actually send them home just with analgesia sometimes if age appropriate I'll put them in a triangle bandage but with a little bit more flexion so that their arm is in about 45 degrees of flexion and then tell the parents to take it off tomorrow see how they're doing and if they're still in pain to come back 
So there's a couple of options there. There's, there's no really good satisfying answer to that question. And I think we all kind of struggle a bit with it. But the more concerned I am that there may be an injury that I'm missing, the more likely I'm going to consider mobilization because that will cure any subluxed elbow and it would be the appropriate treatment in case I've missed a fracture. Well, that almost wraps it up for this month's episode. Next month, I'm totally psyched to have back the great Walter Himmel as well as two hematologists who are some of the world leaders in transfusion medicine research, Dr. Jeannie Callum and Dr. Katerina Pavensky. We're going to be talking about everything you need to know when it comes to anticoagulants, how to reverse them, when they're indicated, bleeding patients, transfusions, and a whole lot more. Before we go, I'd like to leave you with this month's quote of the month. To succeed in life, you need three things. A wishbone, a backbone, and a funny bone. So until next time, take it easy.